0: Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Belanger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Belanger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Visit them today at belangerbooks.com. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and, of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones.
1: And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure.
0: And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Hello and welcome to episode 18. And today we travel from Baker Street to Brook Street in the company of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. We're discussing the adventure of the resident patient, one of the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes, which first appeared in August 1893. And here's a quick reminder of the story from Paul.
1: It is an autumnal evening in the early 1880s, and Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson have just returned from an evening constitutional around central London. To find Dr. Percy Trevelyan waiting for them, with a strange story about his benefactor and resident patient, Mr. Blessington. Having set Trevelyan up in a prestigious practice in Brook Street, the well regulated Blessington has recently become a nervous wreck, a prey to exaggerated fears of burglary. And now there is evidence that the inner sanctum of his living quarters has been visited by strangers whilst he was absent. Thus, Trevelyan has been sent to lay the matter before Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Perhaps the key to the mystery could lie with the recent visit of two Russian noblemen to Brook Street.
0: Now, The Resident Patient is a relatively late entry in the second series of short stories which were um, collected as the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Listeners will know that the first series, The Adventures, started appearing in the second half of 1891, uh, and the series became near enough an, an overnight success. What's often forgotten, though, is that Conan Doyle had only written um, five of the adventures by the time that the first of them, The Scandal in Bohemia, saw print. And he'd pretty much given up on Sherlock Holmes already and turned his attentions elsewhere. He'd moved from central London to uh, South Norwood and was probably working on his suburban drama Beyond the City, which is pretty much as unlike a Sherlock Holmes story as you can get. But with the remarkable success of the Sherlock Holmes stories, the Strand editor, Greenhow Smith, wrote to Conan Doyle to persuade him to continue the adventures to a full dozen and Conan Doyle agreed to do so and raised his fee in the negotiation from uh, 30 guineas to 50 guineas a story. And that agreement gave the Strand stories through to summer 1892. But before they could run out of stories, Greenhouse Smith was already on to Conan Doyle for a second series of short stories. He probably contacted him around January 1892 and it was at this time that Conan Doyle was wrestling with um, two works that we've covered in previous podcasts. He was struggling with balancing two unwieldy halves of the refugees, which we covered in in episode 13. And he was also on Barry's suggestion, adapting A Straggler of Fifteen as the play Waterloo, which we covered in episode 10. And he was already complaining that Sherlock Holmes was taking his mind off better things and wasn't uh, disposed to write more. But then in a letter Of the 4th of February 1892 to his mother, he said, uh, They have been bothering me for more Sherlock Holmes tales. Under pressure, I offered to do a dozen for a thousand pounds, but I sincerely hope that they won't accept it now. Well, fat chance, really. (laughs) The offer was snapped up, and he began writing what would become the memoirs in June 1892. We know that he was uh, halfway through the last of the memoirs, the final problem, in April 1893. So working backwards, he was probably writing The Resident Patient around January 1893. And The Resident Patient appeared in The Strand in August of that year and in Harper's Weekly in the USA in the same month. In fact, the the Harper's version is compressed into three large format pages – uh, and there is a somewhat unfortunate illustration of Blessington's demise on the first of those pages, which completely gives the game away. But I suppose Conan Doyle often had a bit of bad luck with, uh, with illustrators. Uh, and the resident patient was then collected in the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes in December 1893. Uh, that collection came out the same month that the final problem appeared in the strand in which Holmes disappeared over the Reichenbach, uh, apparently never to return. And before we go into talking about the resident patient in more detail, it's worth pointing out that there are two versions of the stories which you will commonly find in print.
1: Yeah, the, um, the, the, the anomaly uh, which, which happens with, with these two versions really is, is, is down to the cardboard box, uh, which was first published in the Strand magazine in January 1893. Um, it's a story that later on Doyle had second thoughts about, and for whatever reason, he didn't want it included in the book publication uh, of the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes. He actually wrote in August 1893 to the Strand's proprietor George Nunes, the story omitted is rather more sensational than I care for. That's mm. referring to the cardboard box. So there was something in there that, that, that he didn't like. Uh, I mean, we can go into this a lot more when we, we cover the cardboard mm. box in the future podcast um but this then caused problems for the, the publication they, they'd lost a story for the book but nevertheless the cardboard box was dropped but it did appear in the US first edition of the memoirs this was corrected in the second impression of the mm. first edition of the uh, the US version of the memoirs um but Conan Doyle was obviously quite happy with the sequence in the cardboard box where sherlock holmes reads watson's thoughts so rather than lose that in book publication it was simply placed into the resident patient mm. um, causing a number of problems and anomalies um, one of the first of which is that the cardboard box opens on a blazing hot day in august and the resident patient in the midst of a boi- of boisterous october weather <laughs> Um, so in the, in the uh, changed version of the resident patient, this becomes a close rainy day in October. But then you have an anomaly in the uh, the actual wording because it sounds very strange when Watson claims that uh, a, th- a thermometer of 90 was no hardship to him. <laughs> and then he states that Parliament had risen, everybody was out of town, and I yearned for the glades of the New Forest or the Shingle of South Sea, which are <laughs> very odd yearnings <laughs> in October. So that's the first anomaly. Um, <laughs> And then the the, the second anomaly was that when later collected editions of the full canon are put together, you get the mind reading sequence appears in two stories. So the cardboard box is reinstated in his last bow in uh, 1917 and the later collected omnibus editions have the cardboard box back with the mind reading sequence intact. And the mind-reading sequence is also in versions of the of the resident patient. So you've got some very famous editions um, of, of um, collected Sherlock Holmes stories, including the Crowborough edition of 1930 and the celebrated Doubleday Complete Sherlock Holmes, which was also issued in 1930, uh, which had the famous Christopher Morley preface mm. in memoriam Sherlock Holmes. That was later issued in the UK as the Penguin Complete Sherlock Holmes. The whole thing goes through with the, these two stories with the same incident it was corrected for the John Murray omnibus edition in 1928 but still appears in various editions that are printed to this day
0: yeah yeah and causes chronologists no end of nightmares mm. <laughs> So, so, but I suppose, I mean, it's such a great, it's an iconic sequence, isn't it? I mean, it's a wonderful sequence. of Oh, you can
1: see why Conan Doe wanted to keep it, but um, there could have been a, uh, some more thought put into, into editing, shall we yeah, say. Yeah,
0: just a bit, just a bit. So back to the resident patient proper, and it's probably worth starting by explaining what a resident patient is, uh, because it was a product of a health system that uh, predates the NHS when you could only see a doctor if you could afford to. By the 1880s, the medical profession was increasingly regulated, but things like community nursing, helping people in their own homes was really in its infancy. But for those people who could afford to see a doctor, there was the option of becoming a live-in patient with a doctor and his family. And if you look at newspapers from the 1880s, you often find notices for doctors advertising for resident patients. Um, Sometimes the doctor might talk about their specialisms, like there are, uh, you know, uh, know, a lot about chest infections. Um, and so they can cater for people with chest complaints. Although, more often than not, the, the, the doctors are ruling out the people that they want to have as resident patients. So there are phrases like not mental or contagious <laughs> become quite common in the advertisements. And uh, looking back through some of these some of these adverts, uh, uh, I found that the going rate in the 1880s seems to have been around £200 a year. Well, now, given that Conan Doyle's practice in Southsea never earned him more than £300 a year, an additional £200 a year would have been uh, very welcome. And Conan Doyle had his own experience of a resident patient, albeit very brief, while he was at Southsea. We mentioned in the previous episode that... In early 1885, while Conan Doyle was writing Uncle Jeremy's household, he met Louise Hawkins, who would become his first wife. And the circumstances of their meeting was really rather tragic. Uh, Louise moved to South Sea with her widowed mother and her brother John, and they took up residence in an apartment building um, near the seafront. John became very seriously ill with cerebral meningitis, and Conan Doyle was asked to take him on as a resident patient. Uh, But John didn't last very long. He died on the 25th of March, 1885. And it was um, Mrs. Hawkins, uh, Louise's mother, who reported the death, and the death certificate was signed by Conan Doyle. And John was only 25 years old at the time of his death. Um, uh, He was actually one month older than Conan Doyle, Um, although often people present it as though John was, was much younger. Um, And we get some clues as to what may have happened uh, around this from another source, which is Conan Doyle's semi-autobiographical novel, The Stark Munro Letters, which was serialized from 1894 and came out as a novel in 1895. And in the um, novel, Stark Munro meets the Hawkinses, who in the novel are called the La Forces, on a train carriage. And their son, Fred, who appears to be much younger, in the uh, uh, in the novel, than 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 John was, um, has an epileptic fit, and Monroe helps them out. Then there's a significant period of time passes, and uh, Monroe is then asked by a fellow doctor, Doctor Porter, to give a second opinion on a patient. Um, that patient turns out to be Fred Laforce, and it transpires that the Laforce family have been staying with an uncle, who now doesn't feel that he can cope. With uh, caring for uh, Fred since the boy has taken ill, um, so Munro is called on to uh, to take Fred in as a resident patient. And when Munro sees Fred, he says he says this: His eyes were wild, his cheeks flushed, his lips drawn slightly away from his teeth. His temperature was a hundred and two, and he muttered to himself continually and paid no attention to my questions. It was evident to me at a glance that the responsibility which I had uh, taken upon myself was to be no light one. Uh, Munro gives Fred a sedative, but the boy dies in the night. Um, and then there's this sting in the tail in that after a rather quick funeral, Munro gets questioned by the police about the death. And fortunately, he has Dr. Porter who can corroborate his story um, that, that Munro had administered the sedative. Otherwise, there could have been an exhumation uh, which would have found that the body of the child was filled with sedative, and the doctor who had actually uh, been caring for him was the one who'd also signed the um, the death certificate, and therefore would have been, you know, chief suspect in a in a possible murder case.
1: Yes, interesting. We, we have Conan Doyle writing um, about this in a fictionalized version in in the Stark Monroe letters, um, and and years later he actually refers to the incident in a very vague way in in his autobiography memories and adventures uh, in 1924 Uh, and he says of of, uh, John Hawkins his case was a mortal one and in spite of all I could do he passed away a few days later such a death under my own roof naturally involved me in a good deal of anxiety and trouble indeed if I had not had the foresight to ask a medical friend to see him with me on the day before he passed away I should have been in a difficult position
0: Yes, and that quote does give us some more evidence that he's drawing on personal experience when it comes to writing The Resident Patient. He's clearly drawing on his personal experience as a struggling doctor as well when he writes about Percy Trevelyan. And, you know, one might think that Conan Dole would have been very grateful in his day for a, a rich benefactor, though I'm sure he wouldn't have been that happy if it turned out to be a, a wealthy bank robber. <laughs> um, he might well also have been drawing inspiration from... Uh, people for, for Blessington as well.
1: Yes, there was um, a, a, an arch criminal uh, at the time, um, a, a gent called Adam Worth, mm. who has been of interest to Sherlockians over the years uh, because he may have been, well, probably was, um, one of the, the major influences on the creation of, of the character of Professor Moriarty. Um, but Worth might also have... have Played a role in the in the creation or the the shaping of the character of, of Blessington as well. Um, for, for years, Worth he he was a, a an American criminal mm. who'd, who'd worked his way up from the New York underworld uh, into running his own organization um, by by the by the early eighteen nineties. The height of his real power was was in the um, the eighteen seventies. Uh, he, he was actually. Uh, suspected of stealing the uh, the, the famous portrait uh, of the Duchess of Devonshire yes. by Gainsborough, which was stolen from Agnew's Gallery in Bond Street in in 1876, and the rumor was it was worth, but this was this wasn't actually confirmed until 1901. Mm. Um, so he had this this glamour about him, and Worth was was of uh, great public interest um, at, at the time that, that uh, Doyle was was writing the memoirs. Um, because uh, he'd been involved in in a a botched job of of a robbery um, in Liège uh, in October 1892, when he and two confederates uh, attempted to to rob an express van, uh, which was carrying cash from the railways into the the city's banks. Um, So he he was uh, captured, uh, and the newspapers got hold of this. Uh, he, He gave the name Edward Grey as his alias at the time, and he actually lived under the alias Henry Raymond in London, mm. um, but the paper soon cottoned on that, that this was actually Adam Worth. So the name was was very much um, in, in the public sphere at this time. Um, and it's extremely interesting in The Resident Patient that the, the gang that, that Blessington Sutton is part of is the Worthington bank gang. Mm. Mm. Uh, so the name Worth is hidden in there. Um, I, I thought nobody had actually spotted this before, but um, Worth's biographer, uh, Ben McIntyre, actually has his tucked away in a footnote um, <laughs> that, that he had noticed that it is the, the Worthington Bank gang. But it, it does, you know, it, it kind of confirms that, that, yes, this is very likely um, that, that um, Doyle was, was thinking of, of Worth when he's creating this setup with, with Blessington and, and, and his, his criminal cohorts.
0: mm It it wouldn't surprise me. In fact, if anything, it's always surprised me that Conan Doyle didn't draw more from real life cases when they, you know, he he often talked about how difficult it was to get plots and how difficult it was to get ideas and to work those mechanisms into stories. And there are only a handful of cases where we can point to um, stories where he directly drew on um, real life incidents. It wouldn't surprise me that at this time he would be, uh, looking around for for other material, have you know feeling that he'd already exhausted his supply. Yes,
1: it's, it's interesting as well that the the fact he picks up on this um, continental robbery, um, which is is first obviously breaking the news in Belgium. It does find its way obviously over the uh, over the Channel, um, but I think Conan Doyle's kind of latched onto this pretty quickly and and seeing the reports in I think it's the the Liège Gazette um on this story um and it, it, there's also another possible clue um to this this story in in another one of the names in the resident patient uh because because worth was um he, he constantly throughout his career played cat and mouse with the the pinkerton detective agency and his arch enemy was was william pinkerton uh, son of alan pinkerton founder of the agency mm. uh, but the medal that or the, the I can't remember the medal or the prize um, that Percy Trevelyan wins is the Bruce Pinkerton medal. It is. So is that again? We know Conan Doyle was fond of wordplay. Is that him again? Pointing yeah. Pointing towards Worth.
0: Yeah, that's a very good spot. Yeah. Mm. And while we're on the subject of Blessington, one of the things that really um, bamboozles me in the story is this idea that Blessington is the one who asks Percy Trevelyan to get Sherlock Holmes involved in the case. Now, it might well be that Blessington feels that he can call in Sherlock Holmes because he is innocent before the law. I mean, we know that he had given Queen's evidence against the rest of the the gang, um, and in fact, there's a there's a line at the end that Sherlock Holmes says that, wretch uh, as he was, he was still living under the shield of British law. Uh, but he's clearly up to no good, and it's it's one of those peculiarities in the structuring of this story that suggests that Conan Doyle is not perhaps on on best form.
1: I mean, the the only other possible explanations are that he's he's you know very overconfident, like Josiah Amberley in the retired Cullerman, mm. or that he's simply so frightened
0: mm. Mm.
1: that he's just not thinking straight, or or he just wants to save his own skin in any way possible, and and the consequences in terms of of unveiling who he is you know can come later, but he he just wants. Well it's it's strange as well in the way cuz cause, cause Holmes can't really protect him.
0: No, he can't and Holmes makes a number of mistakes as well. I mean this is mm. it's it's an interesting story from that perspective in that. Again I think Conan Doyle feels a like he's a little fatigued with Sherlock Holmes in this one. <laughs> he's he opens the story with having Watson say that, you know, um essentially say, "Well, this isn't one of the best, but I thought I would tell it anyway." Um and there's a rather bizarre statement that um this is one in which Holmes doesn't do all that much deduction, and he compares it with um a study in Scarlet in which there's an awful lot of deduction so so Holmes makes a a number of mistakes he he doesn't act when he knows Blessington is in mortal fear for his life you know he 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 doesn't recommend any precautions that might help Blessington he even probably at that time suspects the page who at the end of the story it turns up turns out you know gets off scot free you know when he leaves Blessington alive, <laughs> Holmes says something like, um, "Well, I'm sure we'll hear more in the morning." Well, mm. they do. He gets shook up at about five mm. in the morning to be told that he's committed suicide, and it's only after Blessington's dead that Holmes has the the, the moment where he he recognizes Blessington and disappears off and. Goes to the records of Scotland Yard and and finds out that he's actually a member of the Worthington Bank Gang. So there's there are lots of there's lots of evidence of Holmes not really being on on great form in this one. As much as I think there are some fantastic moments in it and it's still a very good Sherlock Holmes story. Um, you know, this is this is the fallible side of Sherlock Holmes, which is one of the appealing parts of his character.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's it's also well, it it reflects some Conan Doyle's own interests. He's he, he's obviously very interested in this this idea of the double life, mm. um, and and that Blessington really represents. And again, this this comes back to to Adam Worth, who who lived his own double life, and and you know he's, he's this master criminal who who actually has a mansion uh, near Clapham Common. Um, he, he's got a yacht. He's got racehorses. He's got fine clothes uh he's he's passing this 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 guy from from kind of the, the the lower lower side of New York is passing himself off as an English gentleman now, and this is you know, Blessington's doing a similar thing and and you do find this throughout the canon various takes on this sort of idea where you have Neville sinclair um making his money as as the man with the twisted lip mm. um you, you've got um Carruthers. In the solitary cyclist, who's passing himself off as as a, as a moneyed gentleman, mm. um, and and again coming back to Worth, Professor Moriarty, uh, who runs this criminal enterprise whilst passing himself off as a very eminent uh, scientist, uh, mm. and 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 his confederate Colonel Moran, uh, having the, the he's a, a, a genuinely a distinguished British officer, but. Um, has the the secret life going on underneath? So it's it's a running theme mm. throughout the canon. Um, um, and, and just just as an, an aside, as uh, we're talking of Worth's mansion, um, and this will be pure coincidence. Is, is the fact one of its previous owners had been Sir Charles Trevelyan? <laughs> mm.
0: Very good. But for all that, uh, Holmes doesn't necessarily get uh, the results in this case. He does make a set of absolutely brilliant deductions in Blessington's room, which are really at the heart of the story. Uh, And it all begins with Holmes and Watson seeing the body of Blessington, which comes straight out of the Conan Doyle Gothic playbook. It was a dreadful sight which met us as we entered the bedroom door. I've spoken of the impression of flabbiness which this man Blessington conveyed. As he dangled from the hook, it was exaggerated and intensified, until he was scarce human in his appearance, the neck was drawn out like a plucked chicken's, making the rest of him seem the more obese and unnatural by the contrast. He was clad only in his long night dress, and his swollen ankles and ungainly feet protruded starkly from beneath it. Um,
1: and, and then there's a, an, another wonderful piece of phrasing when uh, when when Blessington's body is 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 cut down, um, and. Uh, Watson talks about it's being cut down with his aid and and he and the inspector cut down the wretched object and laid it reverently under a sheet mm. that contrast is just it's just wonderful
0: mm, very good mm-hmm. wonderful description and then you get into uh Holmes working his way around the room and there's a fantastic version of this in the granada t v series and I was reading uh Bending the Willow by. David stewart Davis recently, uh, and there's a paragraph on this specific scene. It says, um, In The Resident Patient, Brett was particularly proud of the scene where he examines the patient's room, picking up on all the clues without saying a word. He referred to it as the Rafifi scene because it was similar to a sequence in a Jules Dassin film. That's a, it says here in the footnotes, classic French movie of 1955, which concerns a raid on a jewellery store and features a brilliant 25-minute silent robbery sequence. It's a remarkable scene, especially for modern television, having no dialogue for two and a half minutes. And it does epitomize the essence of Sherlock Holmes' minute investigation of a scene of the crime. All those passages that Conan Doyle created describing his detective crawling on the floor, inspecting paintwork with his lens, and scraping dust or cigarette ash into a small envelope for analysis are crystallized in this sequence, and Jeremy Brett knew it. And I think that's spot on, really. It's an absolutely brilliant moment, and it's that whole deduction sequence is just so pivotal to um, the, the resident patient, both the story and indeed the Granada adaptation. And Holmes's deductions all hinge on the presence of these two mysterious Russians who have um, attended Trevelyan's practice over the preceding couple of days. Uh, and this is another appearance of Russians within Conan Doyle's stories around this time. So, so where's the idea for the Russians coming from?
1: Well, I, I think the first reason that, that, that the uh the, the the gang choose to disguise themselves as russians is, is a purely practical one um in in the thought that if they disguise themselves as as, as say french or german they would make the assumption that percy trevelyan as a, as a an educated man would have a familiar a familiarity with the language mm. and would be able to speak uh in in french or german to them so choose russian it's far more unlikely that he would know the language and be able to quiz the the the, the nobleman in what is supposedly his own language mm, mm. but then there are also the background cultural reasons as to why conan doyle might have chosen to uh to to disguise his characters as russians it's <clears throat> to give uh in one sense uh an air of of, of menace think, mm. to, to the fact that, that at this time um, Russians in British popular culture have a certain sinister tinge to them. It comes partly from what we discussed in, in episode nine on uh, an exciting Christmas Eve and, and the, the, the nihilist background um, at this time. Um, but there's also this, this ongoing um, great game so-called great game between Britain and Russia in, in Central Asia for for, for, for mastery of, of Afghanistan and areas of Central Asia and, and Northern India. So Russians always provide a, a, a convenient, um, villainous presence.
0: Yes, and we know Conan Doyle was really interested in the great game as it was unfolding um there's uh, you know, some reasonable evidence that Conan Doyle was very influenced by a particular scandal in 1878, which involved um, the Globe newspaper and the publication of a supposedly secret treaty between the British and the Russians, uh, which was actually leaked by a journalist then working for the Foreign Office as a scribe called Charles Thomas Marvin. And Conan Doyle was in London at the time of this uh, a particular scandal, and he even considered signing up to um, serve with the mo- uh, with the medical volunteers uh, in uh, in in the Russian-Turkish uh, conflict that was then unfolding. But he's very interested in that, and that whole uh, incident around the Congress of Berlin leads ultimately to to the frustration of Russian ambitions in Europe, which then leads to Russia forcing its attentions much more eastwards towards India. And it's then that we get into the second Afghan war, which is the war that in which um, Dr. Watson serves. And the Globe Affair and um, the events surrounding Charles Thomas Marvin could well be an influence for the the naval treaty. Um, Conan Doyle certainly seems to have drawn on some of the incidents and in the source material when when producing that that particular story.
1: Yeah, and, and as, as well as the um the, the the influence of, of of the Marvin affair over over some of um, Conan Doyle's thoughts at this time, in relation to the Russian presence in uh, the Resident Patient, uh, you you might also have found an, another contemporary influence, Mark. Mm, yeah, there's a,
0: there's in January eighteen ninety three, which is when we think he was writing the Resident Patient, Conan Doyle chaired a meeting of the Upper Norwood Literary and Scientific Society, at uh, which a Russian emigre. Um, gave a lecture entitled The Story of My Life. And um, this uh, individual was called Felix Volkovsky. He was a revolutionary, a journalist, a writer, and he was involved in um, radical politics in Russia in the 1860s. In fact, he set up a uh, propaganda press to educate the working classes in 1867. And after several arrests, he then moved to Odessa in 1873, where one of his circle included... um, uh, Andrei Zelyubov, who was one of the principal organizers of the assassination of Alexander II in 1881, um, Volkovsky didn't take part in the assassination. He actually was banished to Siberia in 1878, same year as the Marvin Affair. Uh, but he escaped 10 years later via America and made his way to London, where he became the sub-editor of the newspaper Free Russia, uh, and he sort of largely filled that role of being an intermediary between the Russian radicals, the anarchists, the nihilists, and um, sympathetic Western Europeans, uh, pretty much until his death in 1914. And as I was looking at um, into Volkovsky, uh, I found a really interesting article from uh, the Dundee Evening Post, 3rd of September 1900, which references Volkovsky as a member of what it titles somewhat brilliantly, London's Only Murder Club. Um, And this is the Autonomy Club, uh, which they they subtitled the Home of Anarchism in Britain, uh, which was set up in 1880. Uh, Rather pleasingly had its uh, base at Rathbone Place. (laughs) Uh, And uh, Volkovsky was a member, as were a whole uh, raft of Russian emigres and radicals, anarchists, terrorists. Um, And apparently the club paid host to uh, Vera Sosulich, who um, shot at uh, General Trepov, um, as we talked about in in episode nine on an exciting Christmas Eve? So there's there's a Russian emigre with uh, radical connections in South Norwood, of all places, where Conan Doyle is living at the time, um, at exactly the time when he is he's writing this story. So he could well be drawing on on that as an influence, and indeed drawing on uh, Adam Worth's uh, uh, arrest, as you as you pointed out, Paul.
1: Yeah, and put, put, strangely putting the two together.
0: Yeah, yeah, very odd.
1: And there, there could also be um, another very different sort of cultural influence um, going on at this time as, as, as well. As, as I just stated earlier, Russians in British popular culture at this time were often used in a, in a villainous capacity. Hmm. Um, but there was also very much a, a taste, certainly amongst um, the, the, the educated in, in Britain, for. Russian literature. Mm. There was a real discovery of, of 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 these these great sprawling Russian novels that were, were being written at the time, and we know Conan Doyle certainly took an interest in this. He he could, he could only read them in in translation, but in his South Sea notebooks, he he notes uh, a number of of um, Ivan Turgenev's works that, that he'd read uh and we also know from letters to his mother and, and comments in, in 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 other media that that he he was an admirer of of uh, the work of leo tolstoy mm. um so this this could also be feeding into the resident patient because that the 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 underlying themes of the story this this kind of crime and punishment and and guilt and reparation um and and with with the fate that comes to Blessington, this sort of inexorable end that was mm. was going to be his—it's um, it, all got this very sort of dark uh, Russian theme about it, and that, that feel that, that he's probably taking from uh, from these these particular sorts of books. And talking of the um, inexorability of, of, of fate and, and punishment for, for Blessington or Sutton. Um, it is interesting that um, Holmes refers to, to him as the worst of the gang, but it's Cartwright who was actually hanged for the murder of, of, of Tobin, the caretaker. Mm. Uh, is this a hint that, that the, the actual murderer was, was Blessington, who saved his own neck, literally, by turning Queen's evidence and got one of his comrades hanged in his place, mm. in which case it would make his punishment at the hands of the other, the other three very fitting indeed.
0: Mm. the other the other implication I was just thinking was that you know holmes Holmes regards him as the worst because of the fact that he turned queen's evidence because mm. he and he's still allowed he's still getting away with mm. what he you know
1: yeah it's 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 also interesting in this tying into um, again coming back to adam worth on this is 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 worth had many faults but he he was never a violent criminal mm. and he never stitched up any of his 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 mates um, and when he was captured in Liege in in October 1892, the Belgian prosecutors used one of his old comrades, the the safe cracker Max Schinburn, to to turn evidence against Worth. And, and Schinburn had a lot of uh, a lot of underlying issues here, and was, was delighted to help get Adam Worth seven years in a Belgian prison.
0: Oh gosh, another possible influence, mm. absolutely. <laughs> And if the gang thought they were treading on safe territory by pretending to be Russians, they uh, were certainly on dodgier ground when it came to their choice of catalepsy as being a uh, um, a tool to uh, to engineer their access to Blessington's rooms, um, because Doctor Trevelyan is meant to be a uh, expert on nervous lesions. In fact, he gets identified by Watson as being the author of a monograph upon. Obscure nervous lesions, to which Trevelyan says uh, you know he thought the paper quite dead as it hadn 't sold well, so you know um, he said his own his own hobby had been nervous disease. I should wish to make it an absolute specialty, but of course, a man must take what he can get at first, which is another sort of a side to conan doyle 's own experience as a as a as a uh, young doctor in practice um, and there was a really interesting article came out in two thousand and fifteen in the Journal of Neurology on the resident patient. And but more importantly, the connections between Sherlock Holmes and a, a medical figure called Dr. William Gowers. Um, and this article came out, uh, it's called The Strange Case of Dr. William Gowers and Mr. Sherlock Holmes by Andrew J. Lees. Uh, William Gowers was a celebrated clinical neurologist, and he was the author of The Manual of Diseases of the Nervous System, which came out in 1886. And it's often referred to as the Bible of neurology, and apparently it's still consulted to this day. And Gowers is quite a remarkable man. He was the son of a Hackney bootmaker um, and apprenticed to a local doctor under duress uh, before uh, sort of finding his talent. And eventually he went into practice in about 1870 and then worked right through to 1910 in what is now the National Hospital for Neurology and Neuroscience in Queen's Square in London. Uh, And he was also a lecturer at University College Hospital and had his own consultancy in Queen Anne Street uh, all at the time when Conan Doyle was in practice. And Lee's article is mostly about how Gowers exhibits the same sort of uh, deductive reasoning as uh, as Sherlock Holmes. But in that, there's perhaps less of a direct connection in that you know, Bell and Gowers are both of a similar kind of school of, of training. Um, but there is an interesting connection there that um, Lee's makes in that Gowers and Conan Doyle shared a mutual friend in Rudyard Kipling. Um, although whether or not there's any... They they met through that connection is is unknown, uh, but when um, Lee's talks about Gower and uh, the resident patient, he's probably on on firmer ground himself um, because when Conan Doyle was in London in eighteen ninety one, Gowers was giving clinical demonstrations and postgraduate lectures uh, on all manner of of nervous diseases, and it's quite possible that he he attended some of those. Um, and Lee's notes that. Uh, it seems probable that Doyle consulted Gower's manual for source material for the Russian nobleman's feigned cap- catalepsy. And if you go to the manual, which you can, you can find online, it's about a thousand pages, but there are a couple of pages on catalepsy. And in it, uh, Gower says, uh, the onset of the special symptoms is usually sudden, commonly with loss of consciousness. The whole or part of the muscular system passes into a state of rigidity. The limbs remain in the position they occupied at the outset, as if petrified. The countenance is usually expressionless. The respiratory movement and heart's actions are weakened. The attack may last a few minutes or several hours. Many cases of simple trance have been included under the term catalepsy, but it's better to restrict the name to the condition in which the peculiar rigidity exists. And he goes on to suggest that ammonia or snuff uh, would be possible substances to uh, to break the condition. As it happens, Trevelyan's description of, of, of catalepsy very closely mirrors the medical description in, in the textbook, um, actually, Trevelyan goes off and uses uh, nitrate of amyl, which um, uh, in my mind is always connected with to Tory sex scandals of the nineteen nineties. Um, uh, so, so there's a, I think there's a decent chance that, uh, as Lee suggested, Conan Doyle would have referenced this particular work because, you know, as Trevelyan himself says, the chances of coming across someone with catalepsy and seeing it firsthand uh, is uh, is is pretty slim.
1: So it, it it seems probable then that the gang have, have read up on, on Trevelyan, seen his his expertise, and said, right, we'll 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 pass mm. ourselves off, uh, uh, one of us off as, as suffering from this condition, and get his interest, in, in, and and so use it that way. Um, and and I, I think that sounds right, Mark, that 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 Conan Doyle had encountered Gower's work, mm. um, but there's there's also another. Uh, Cultural influence, which which is 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 also to be felt in this story, which is is that of his great literary hero Edgar Allan Poe, mm. who was absolutely fascinated by um, cataleptic conditions. Mm. Um, he, he had a he was either a morbid dread or a morbid fascination um, with, with with catalepsy, and it it, it does feature as um, a central plot device in, in at least three of his his major tales, uh, Berenice. Uh, the premature burial uh, yeah. and um, the fall of the House of Usher, <laughs> and and of those three stories, um, the fall of the House of Usher is is obviously the most fa- famous, but the premature burial is the one which has a, a it's got a long lead up to the actual story, yeah, which which goes through various um supposedly historical accounts of catalepsy and it, it it's it's Poe trying to give this this very similitude to his story and saying, Look, this this condition really does exist. And here are some cases, um including, I think there's there's one of a, a lady who's who's buried alive in a vault, uh, and as as she's trying to escape her her, her shroud gets that gets caught on the gate. And when her husband comes to reopen the vault, a skeleton in its shroud is just hanging there. So it's, it's proof of, 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 the, of the horror that she's undergone.
0: And we know that the Victorians were, were quite obsessed with the notion of being buried alive as well. I mean, there's, there was even the Society for the Prevention of per- Premature Burial. And,
1: um, and um, lots of crazy inventions, uh, linking bells and telephones up to the coffin just in case. Yeah,
0: absolutely, absolutely. And these uh, cataleptic Russians almost get away with it in the end, uh, although uh, Conan Doyle has a a, a bit of a sting in the tail for them.
1: Uh, Yes, well, once more, the inexorability of of fate wanders into this story, Uh, and and we're told that that after the murder of of Blessington, from that night, nothing has been seen of the three murderers by the police, and it is surmised at Scotland Yard that they were among the passengers of the ill-fated steamer Nora Craner, which was lost some years ago with all hands upon the Portuguese coast, some leagues to the north of Oporto. Now, there's another literary reference sneaking in mm-hmm. here. Um, the, the, the Nora Craner is actually the name of, of a ship in um, Robert Louis Stevenson's novel, The Wrecker, which was actually, uh, which had run as a serial in the Scribner's magazine uh, between 1891 and 92. And was published as a book in 1892. So again, it's something Conan Doyle will just have read mm. just just before um, before embarking um upon the The Resident Patient. Um and we also know at this time he was actually in correspondence with Stevenson at about about this time. Um and he would have deliberately put this name in just as a, a little fun reference for for Stevenson to pick up on, I've I've no doubt.
0: Mm, absolutely. And and uh, this, this technique of uh, having somebody mysteriously die at sea with their, get their ultimate comeuppance um, is something that Conan Doyle does a few times uh, in stories. But um, in the in the Sherlock Holmes stories alone, you've got uh, obviously what happens here in The Resident Patient. In, in The Five Orange Pips, you have the murderers of John Oppenshaw um, die on the Lone Star of, of Savannah. And then you have um, the Tiger of San Pedro in Wisteria Lodge is, is killed in a hotel room off off screen several months later. And then perhaps the most peculiar one is is in The Greek Interpreter where the the uh, protagonists escape and then knife each other in, in Budapest. Uh, and that's really odd because that's the very next story to be written or, or certainly to appear.
1: And, and uh, like in The Resident Patient, it appears to be a, a gang vendetta falling out with each other.
0: Yeah. So that brings us to the end of this episode. You can find the show notes at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at Doings of Doyle on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed the episode, please leave a rating or review on your podcaster of choice. And what have we got next time, Paul?
1: Next time, we return with Conan Doyle to his home city of Edinburgh uh, for one of his most effective ghost stories, The Silver Mirror.
0: Excellent. Really looking forward to that. So until then, it's goodbye from me.
1: And goodbye from me.
0: Goodbye. And- Can you imagine the prevent society for the prevention of primitive yeah, people obviously not that bothered anymore
1: well it's because most bad people get cremated yeah
0: too late <laughs> don't get don't get <laughs> don't get enough chance it's all a bit diamonds are forever and that's it <laughs>